lucky one. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a redneck by its toe. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. My mama told me to pick the best one and you. I'm not saying, you know, I believe in mass murder or that shit, but don't get us wrong. Yeah, you know, we respect human life and all. But if I was a mass murderer, I'd be Mickey and Mallory. Well, you know, the only thing that kills a demon love. You still like me now, Jack? Born well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. Military industrial contract. I did not trade arms for hostages. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Nick and I'm joined by Adam, Hans, and Hank. How are you guys doing? Very good. Doing well. Awesome. Great. Now, today we are going to talk about a great American tradition, which is the obsession with mass murder, uh, pedophilia, rape, um, sodomy, dismemberment, cannibalism, uh, and all the other things that you'll see on nightly television. So, well, we should mention this is, of course, sort of prompted by the chattering classes talking about this Ted Bundy special on Netflix. Yes, have you, I have not seen it. Have any of you guys seen this thing? I have seen it. It was well done. I, I recommend it. Um, it's, uh, you know, not anything particularly, um, I think, revelatory or... Um, insightful but it was uh, very technically well produced um you know if the subject matter appeals to you i think you, you'll find it uh you'll find it enjoyable i guess 
I'm sure they did not include any of the tapes in which he admitted that there were other people involved. Uh, they played a bunch of the um, the tapes that he uh, had. Um, I mean, they they definitely played some of the ones where he like kind of deflected responsibility and did the whole like, oh my god, look at this monster deflecting responsibility bit. Um, but uh, I don't. They definitely didn't like play up any of the um, the the kind of conspiracy, for lack of a better word, uh, angles. Yeah, in one transcript, he. Uh, in explaining how it is he was able to be supported while on the lam, uh, he said that he had other various other people helping him. And this is a theme I want to get into today, which is just the general myth of the serial killer. I think when I think about this, I, I can't help but think of what Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers film, which, in my opinion, is probably the single greatest film depicting the spirit of America, the real spirit of America. Uh, are you guys? You guys have, I'm sure, seen the seen the movie. I have. Why do you sure. say that? Uh, well, it it depicts the relationship between uh, murderers, the media establishment, and the police that is entirely symbiotic, uh, and the public, of course, who consume, you know, your girlfriend, wife. Or elderly mother who uh, spend their evening hours consuming this type of material, uh, vicious uh, pseudo-pornography around uh, violent crimes. And it's not like a new thing either. Like this is the uh, the Angela Lansbury murder she wrote demographic, oh, most of which has now died off. It's not a well, okay. It it's not an entirely new thing, and I mentioned for. An, before we started the show that America has had its folk heroes, uh, many of which were murderers, such as Jesse James, who perhaps has had more folk songs written about him than any other figure from American history. Uh, things change, though, with the television age and the mass media phenomenon, which is what Natural Born Killers is about. I mean, you have the various people vying for the spotlight of murder. I mean, and it, similarly, it's also based on the the American romance, the archetypical American romance, which I would describe as murdering your girlfriend's parents and going on a interstate murder spree. I think that that's a well-established archetype in film, and it, it reflects, I mean, Natural Born Killers was uh, one of at least three films that was loosely based on the on the Starkweather killings. In the case of Natural Born Killers, it was a hybrid of the Starkweather killings and what I would call the golden age of serial killers, uh, which Manson, Manson the, one of the greatest American philosophers, really ushered in into the media spotlight and, and public consumption. But uh, this, it's like, it's the resolved anonymity of the, the serial killer that's novel. Because if you look at uh, things like Scottish murder ballads, you can go back to the 1600s and find murder ballads with exactly that plot of, you know, the, the, the handsome boy from down in the valley longs for the, the lady up on the hill, but they can't be together. So he murders the parents and abducts her and then kills her and then kills himself. Like that, that's like a half dozen songs. Yeah, no doubt. And the American version of it, you see also in Terrence Malick's excellent Badlands, which is a more direct adaptation of the Starkweather killings. 
or the I forget was it Tony or Ridley? I think it was Tony Scott's True Romance, where instead of the parent, it is in this case the surrogate or de facto parent, which would be her pimp that Christian Slater murders. Uh, all those, are, and then you have, of course, the Bruce Springsteen songs to go along with it, or at least the song about the Badlands. So, so Hank brings up a, a valid data point, and that there are other countries that do this. So, what do you think is uniquely American about this? I mean, do you think it's, it's not other of- country? I mean, those are from European tradition. Those are, I mean, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I, I do think it's a part of of an older, an older racial and cultural lineage, uh, but I think it's transmuted into a very modern form and it has a, a big touch in the modern day. It has a big touch of, I would say the Marquis de Sade. Well, I mean, there have been murders in America going back to the 17th century. I think one of the guys sailed in on the Mayflower, John New Newcomen was basically <laughs> murdered by other colonists right off the bat. Um, a lot of the early sort of Boston and Philadelphia press got very into this. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads trend. That's that's a v- time honored tradition in American journalism. Uh, well, part yeah. of that you can make uh, a case that has to do with the uh, religious ways of these people and why they would find it so salacious and uh, consume newspapers and literature that had to do with murders going on inside of uh, the new colonies. But regardless, this has been a huge part of the American sort of media and political tradition of always making it known to everyone at all times, the grisly details of every single murder at all times. I I can relate to the modern media sort of emphasizing this, uh, but the root of my question is how does this compare to other places around the world? And let's try to, you know, pick today to make it simpler. Uh, you know, let's just take a country in Europe or a place in Europe. Is it more or is it a different character that defines this uniqueness in, I guess, all of your minds? I would, well, I would say that there are countries in Europe that are similar to America or at least have become similar to America and sort of a weird fascination with murder mystery. Uh, the UK, for sure. Um, Ireland, to an extent, uh, and the Scandinavian countries as well have a very weird yeah, fascination. Their, their with stuff is super dark. I mean, very in a very um, um, what sort I'm looking for uh, widespread fascination with murder mystery, um, and some of it. You, I mean, I believe the author of the. Um, the Lizbeth or Liz Salander series, you know, the the girl with the dragon tattoo series. He even mentioned at one point that you know he took his inspiration for that, um, like a Scandinavian take on, you know, American murder mystery, uh, not only from the United States but from his appreciation and what he called it for American focus. You know, his outside view of America was that this is a country that focuses on murder focuses on on the mystery of understanding violence and it becomes a community effort everyone gets involved everyone's interested in knowing the truth about what really happened there's one mystery aspect is key that it's 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 not just a tragedy it's not just for instance a spree killing but that it's a ongoing 
a series of events by some unknown party that then there's this mythos because you can't have a mythos about something where every detail is completely known. I was just going to add, um, Hans was mentioning the uh, girl with the dragon tattoo, which is from Sweden. There's another series, uh, that's pretty famous from there called, uh, Wallander and the sort of anglicized pronunciation would be Wallander in, in Swedish. Oh, I mean, uh, there's a, there's a Danish series, uh, the bridge, which became very famous. There have been a couple, um, semi-famous series that come out of Norway. Um, there obviously Germany with dark and some other more recent, um, pieces of content on Netflix and other, uh, other outlets, has sort of entered this as well. I don't know if it's if it's if it is actually the Americanization of these countries that's producing this, or these places are a little bit more naturally predisposed to it. Okay, uh, so let me Hans, let me jump in on that point. I believe that there's a lot of fiction and propaganda and misinformation, and so yes, it, I think it's the Americanization of these countries insofar as I I, I think. I would summarize what a serial killer is, is a murderer operating without diplomatic cover. And in many of these countries, particularly in, a, in, in Belgium, you had a Marc Dutroux who was basically operating an uh, elite pedophile ring. And he became the serial killer type fall guy for this ring. And we'll see as we proceed uh, similar examples to this. I'm not going to talk about Europe. I'm going to talk about America. But there are instances in Italy, Latvia, Portugal, a very similar thing. So I think that insofar as the serial killer concept has been put into the, the media of these American colonies in Europe, uh, that's the direct result. Uh, that comes from, from Hollywood, from California, from the FBI. Uh, the serial, serial killer, this concept, this did, well, yes, there are, it's true we've had murder ballots throughout history and there's also a big difference between a piece of genuine art like Terrence Malick's Badlands and you know I don't know CSI or whatever it is that your mother's watching god forbid your girlfriend or wife uh, but serial killer concept came in, we talked previously about the nature of the misinformation surrounding organized crime in America of the syndicate right and I see a lot of parallels to how that operated. Uh, both were given misnomers by the FBI, specifically. In the case of the, of the syndicate, it was a mafia to denote a specifically Italian form of, of criminality where, when reality is cross-racial cooperation between Jews, Italians, and the WASP establishment um, to keep the American criminal enterprise running. But it, it was coined in 1977 uh, by, a, by a Fed named Robert uh, Russell. And Russell in, had some, there's some interesting facts about Russell. I, I, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about, I, I'm going to be drawing from the research of Dave McGowan and his book, A Program to Kill. He has a lot, it's very dense and has a lot of very strange oddities and rabbit holes that we, we can't really spend time too much on all these individual cases. But uh, one thing that was interesting about this guy is that he grew up with none other than John Wayne Gacy, which I thought to be a little bit interesting. Uh, but one of his 
he basically got his his start in this this whole concept of FBI profiling, the the archetype of the Clarice uh, from Silence of the Lambs, with a a guy who many believe was in fact innocent. I think he was one of the longest serving inmates in an American penitentiary. His name was William Herons. And it's likely that he ended up taking the fall for crimes that he did not commit, despite you know him him fitting the type. And what the type is is somebody who, as we'll see, if you go through the list of the, the most famous American serial killers, there are certain things that they all have in common. But what this FBI category was able to do is essentially the FBI the the push for this psychological profile. The idea that there's just a psychological type of these people, these serial killers, uh, it came from the feds, not from academia or psychiatry. Not that psychiatry is uh, necessarily a legitimate science. It is a legitimate science insofar as testing how people respond to pressures and manipulating them. Yeah, it's it's legitimate insofar as that. But the idea that you know these. These people are just out there and they're organic products of American society. Uh, I am very skeptical of this. Well, you mentioned a couple of things uh, that were on my mind when we were discussing this topic. Um, the fact that a lot of women that we all know seem to fixate on this type of subject matter, to me, has always been somewhat interesting and also somewhat disturbing. Uh, any theories, pet theories as to why that is, guys? Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I think it, this goes for men too, because I should add as well that even in, on the internet right wing, uh, serial killers are folk heroes, uh, take uh, none other than Ted Kaczynski. Well, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll come on him briefly. This is so Nick asked everybody to, you know, look up somebody that was of note to talk about today. And uh, I struggled with it because I've never really been one to enjoy this subject. Um, I've, you know, it's a little distasteful, and uh, I never really understood why these guys do this. To be honest with you, I mean, I understand if somebody goes out and does something, and it has negative consequences. But if there's an overall goal in mind, I, like Kaczynski's, I can sort of understand it. What I never understood about these serial killers was why the hell they did this. Uh, I just I don't get it. But that's me. But Kaczynski, he had a point, and he was trying to get his manifesto published. And in the days before the internet, he couldn't do that unless he got people's attention. Now, should he have killed people? I'm not going to endorse that. Uh, could he have done it other ways? Possibly, probably. But at least he had something in mind that was actually beneficial for society as a whole, in my opinion. And I think that's what a lot of people respect about him. Uh, whether they respect the fact that he murdered people, I think is probably not the, the issue. It's more of his ideas and his manifesto. Well, people, every every American so-called serial killer has their groupies. Uh, every single one. Oh no, no, no question. But you brought up the you know online cult around him, and I think a lot of those people just sort of were pleasantly surprised by sort of the insights in his writing as opposed no i, to I don't think it's just his writing i think it's that he killed people. i'm not saying it's just just the right no no, no i'm, I'm there's separate I, groups. I think i think you're saying that it's separate i'm saying it's not i think people like the fact that he killed people and i think that this is a, as a general reason i, I that, don't i don't and so if i'm the only no, person it's, it's on the, the reunification like of like an ideology in, in like you always have this dancing around the uh the idea of like you know 
somebody who who made it stick to the system is also a uh, an archetype that vastly predates the founding or discovery of America. And you know, there's a ability to take somebody like Ted Kaczynski, who was specifically trying to make a point and slot him into that archetype. Like you need to distinguish the kind of specific case of serial killers from the glorification of violence more generally. Or maybe you don't, like if you want to broaden it out, but I think well, they are clearly distinguishable. Any any mainstream, you know, academic or media cultural list of serial killers is going to include Ted Kaczynski. Well, yeah, because, I mean, any list of, you know, right-wing violence is going to include a lot of things that by no reasonable definition include right-wing violence, too. Yes, but in, in the pro- all these behavioral analytic-type approaches were applied to Kaczynski. I mean, he, he it was the—not to mention, like others in that we can talk about, uh, Ted Kaczynski, as I believe we discussed in the episode we did on him, was subjected to some form of MKUltra conditioning. Yeah, I just don't think it's, it's uh, productive, maybe, to—like, it's possible to slot him into that category. It's possible to discuss this, like, uh, compare and contrast with his, uh, his actions versus— you know, John Wayne Gacy or whatever, but, uh, you know, the fact that he has this additional saliency, it's like, you know, the, uh, the joke that we were talking about in, in some of the prep, like who's your favorite serial kicker killer. It's George W. Bush, man. Like, I mean, okay, maybe, but you sidetracks. Well, you know, as I met, I believe I also discussed in the Ted Kaczynski episode, I'm long been suspicious as to whether or not Kaczynski was responsible for all of those killings. I think that the serial killer fixture is a very convenient, it's a convenient concept to obscure violence, the the true and specific nature of violence from the American people. I mean, take, I would, I would draw an analogy from the American golden age of serial killing to things like the Bolshevik Revolution or the French Revolution. You had a situation where ma- mass violence was was being normalized. And in the midst of this, you had very specific violence. You had targeted assassinations. Uh, you had occult violence. You had a violence that had metaphysical pretense. There was, there was some ritualistic purpose to it. And you also had mass violence as a means of, of mass terror for subduing a population and ushering in the new state. And I, I, I see America largely as a, as a revolutionary state of that nature and slow burn because the people, many of these people, these, these killers were operating. I mean, look, let's, let's start, let's start at the beginning. Uh, in, but when this trend kicked off, it kicked off like so many things in America do in California and the home of the cultural elite. And the rest of the country was slower to catch on just as it always is. I mean, you had, of course, the Manson killings. Uh, you had the uh, uh, Zodiac killings. You had, uh, uh, let's see, what were their names? The the guys who uh, threw the corpses on the hills. Uh, you had, uh, what were they? Uh, Kemper, uh, Ed- Edmund Kemper, Herbert Mullen, you had John Frazier in Santa Cruz. Uh, it was, it was, it was the big. It was where the the superstar serial killer trend began. I mean, the, the Zodiac's probably most most enigmatic of all. 
and the Manson killings, one of the, without having to go into a whole episode on the Manson killings, uh, one of the great myths about the Manson killings was that these were these were random targets. Uh, when in reality, these people all these people all knew each other. They were meshed in the same Laurel Canyon, Beverly Hills scene. Uh, the Polanskis were Satanists and uh, drug dealers, as well as prob- hosting various, you know, s- s- sadomasochistic sex parties at their place. Uh, Charlie had been to their place. Many people in Ho- Hollywood elite knew knew Charlie and uh, didn't want to admit it. And this atmosphere of terror and violence, I mean, and these were happening concurrently, mind you. I mean, you had the Zodiac and Manson killings. The, these things were all, were all happening uh, next to each other. And what I would say, the, the one aspect of the Manson killings to note of is the, the syndicate element. You had various people getting knocked off uh, who were involved in drug trafficking. So you had clean, basically a cleanup operation as well as you know, people who would maybe spill the beans on uh, sex trafficking as well. It was a convenient cover of this, oh, this crazy person who, you know, this this hip this hippie cult leader. When uh, it went much deeper than just Manson and the, the family. Yeah, I mean, I think if uh, people want to look into Santa Cruz specifically, that's uh, there's clearly something in the water there, or at least there was in the, uh, the mid-70s, because... By my count, there's at least three or four um, specific mass murders to uh, come out of that particular area in that particular time and be was, operating concurrently. It's just a real spooky place. Wasn't there one who was caught recently, the Golden Gate Killer? Yeah, the uh, that was the uh, the ex-cop, I believe. Yeah, the 23andMe <laughs> murder mystery where they the basically a cousin of his put in data into one of those genetic ancestry sites, and that's how they caught him. Basically, you know, something something to that effect. But I know he was operating around that time, and he had a similar mo. They all had similar mos where they would leave voicemails and taunt the police and send cryptic messages. There's definitely something very odd about Northern California. I don't know why it produces such odd people who do very odd things. Well, that's not too surprising. I mean, it was it was sort of known for its counterculturalism and attracted a lot of those types. That's why I think Manson was there at one point um, during the '60s, and I think that goes along with these types that are looking to kind of be different. No, it's it, well. We talked about this in the Laurel Canyon scene. It wasn't this wasn't an organic counterculture. These people came here for reasons specific reasons and many of them connections to the military industrial complex uh, as for yeah, like Santa- right around the time that stanford became this huge epicenter for the mic especially after world war ii and you know that's basically like steve blink's untold history of silicon valley is basically this notion that stanford was this epicenter for financing Initially by the U.S. government and then by parties, you know, one way or another tied to the U.S. government and people like Manavar Bush getting involved in pushing this sort of technological utopia out in the middle of orange groves. Yeah, and in addition to that, all these other – you look at various serial killers throughout throughout the country and many of them are influenced by the – and participating in the, in the occult mystery schools that came out of California. From the church, from LeVay's Church of Satan to the 
uh, OTO to Scientology. Yeah, fun fact, actually, Scientology is, is loosely connected to NASA. Um, some of the early people who were involved in um, uh, building JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, um, Southern California, they were involved in uh, Satanist groups within Los Angeles, um, and they are tangentially related to L. Ron Hubbard. Well, he's a, he's a sci-fi author originally, right? Yes, but it, went, it was deeper than just fans of sci-fi work. It was uh, military connections from his time in the military. It was sort of deep-rooted friendships, and it was also part of Hubbard's early days in, into Satanism. Yeah, and that's where and Hubbard. I mean, that's why you had. I mean, Hubbard came out of the same milieu. He was. I mean, he was a Crowleyan. Came out of the same. And you look look at someone like Jack Parsons, probably the star Crowley disciple from the early years. I mean, he was a he was a rocket scientist working in Pasadena. I mean, this at a high level. uh, I mean, he he was up there with with the best as far as leading leading scientists of his generation. Parsons was, but Hubbard was a. Fraud. I mean, he he made shit up basically. Parsons was a legit. Yeah, I'm talking scientist. about Parsons. I'm talking about yeah. Jack Parsons. Yeah. Okay. Just for clarity. Okay. And then on. I mean, on top of that, you talk about Scientology. Uh, I mean, how many people are aware that the uh, in uh, 1969 among the killings attributed to the Zodiac killer, there were two. Were, there were two Scientologists who were murdered. And Didn't not know. only that, but one of the of the two Scientologists that were murdered. Uh, one of them had dated Bruce Davis, which, who was a Manson disciple. And you talked also about Stanford. Stanford it's not just the, the hard science aspect of the military-industrial complex, but it's the psychological side of it. I mean, you have the Stanford Research Institute, and then you have Esalen. And people like uh, spooks like Timothy O'Leary floating around there. Charles Manson also visited Esalen. Yeah, what it seems like to me is that you have kind of a new society where just, I mean, in the 70s, ungodly numbers of people had moved into those areas over the course of the past, like, you know, 30 years or so, really ever since World War II. So there were no established social roots. People were just there for their own idiosyncratic reasons. And in combination of this, you had a, a massive amount of spookery going on, a massive cultural shift going on. And when you throw all these things into the blender, I mean, this is this is kind of almost the consensus explanation for why this phenomenon sort of arose or appeared to arise in the 70s, is that it was possible all of a sudden for a stranger to show up in town somebody dies and the stranger leaves and nobody finds any aspect of this unusual or connected in any way. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you also have interpower elite struggles taking place. And when you create this atmosphere of violence, one of the key aspects of Dave McGowan's thesis is that the explosion of the, the serial killer phenomenon in the seventies and eighties or more so the sixties and the seventies rather, I should say, is directly tied to the Phoenix program uh, because you have the United States is, uh, I mean, these, these people, you can operate abroad. You can, you know, decapitate and mutilate, uh, cannibalize and rape uh, 
Vietnamese villages, right? I mean, th this stuff was all tested there, and these same people were involved. And you had, I mean, Bill, Bill Kobe comes back, and uh, this is when you start to see this appear in the early in the early seventies. I, I think that one explanation well, okay. for what's going on is you. I mean, you create. You, you, these are media manufacturing. I mean, they're all given these sexy names, et cetera. And you, you create the pretense of this random violence as a way to off various key people in, in the underworld that need to be offed. Or I people think there's an would, alternate explanation that, I mean, people just realized it was possible. It's kind of the, like a twisted version of a preference cascade. Like, at before a certain point in the U.S., people just didn't lock their cars because who who's going to steal a car? Like, what do you what do you what do you mean? You, you take the car and you don't give it back? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like, what are you even going to do with it? But like after a certain point, people realize, oh shit! Like you can just part it out and sell it for crack, and suddenly everybody's got to lock their freaking car doors. Like these these sorts of obvious things that, well, actually, when you come to think about it, nobody actually cares about a dead hooker. The, these are not things in general currency to the point where they kind of drive patterns of behavior until they are, and then it's like a switch flips. I think it's it's ridiculous to say that, you know, the Phoenix program, like these are all ex-spooks coming back. But I think it's completely plausible to say that, especially with things like Vietnam and with the emergence, particularly of the media phenomenon, people realized that it's in principle possible. And so this is like various people with twisted you know, mental states or whatever, or, you know, various spooks with agendas suddenly realizing, oh, well, turns out in, you know, the current year, it's possible to just kill somebody. Yeah, the, the 70s were extre I, extremely violent. Also, if you just look at this sort of number of homicides, there was a spike there. Uh, and it, it's gone down ever since. And it wasn't all serial killings. I mean, there was, you know, just rapes, there was people robbing people and then beating them up. Uh, there was just a lot of violence. And, there was uh, a ton of uh, left-wing violence. The first episode of this show was on Days of Rage, which details you know this explosion in political violence in the 70s. Absolute explosion of political violence that hadn't really been seen since the Civil War in the United States. Yeah, I, w I want to respond to what Hank said, though. I, I, sh I should add, too, that uh, there was also an explosion of violence after the American war against Europe following 1945, uh, because you had people coming back after committing mass murders uh, who were desensitized to violence, and the same is true as the post-Vietnam era. But I, I didn't say it was necessarily ex-spooks coming back. I, in, the, in the Phoenix operation, one thing that was done was they basically emptied Vietnamese prisons for various forms of, of perverts and psychopaths and unleashed them to terrorize villages. And what you see... There's a pattern that in, in the American serial killer milieu of uh, these people usually are spending time for various crimes, often, you know, murdering their mother or grandmother and raping their corpse, and then they're let out onto the streets, uh, usually first visited by various psychiatrists. But in one instance in particular, you did have Arthur Shawcross, 
Arthur Shawcross uh, killed somewhere between like you know thirty and forty people in Vietnam, and he came back and uh, applied his trade in in the United States. I it, could it, I could even it, it's tempting it's tempting to to put these events to connect them with what caused these subsequent events, these killings. Um, and I, I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, what I did do though, and I have to be, you know, in good sort of academic conscience, uh, say this is that I, you know, and you can, you can mock the source, but it was basically just the Wikipedia entry on, um, serial killings. And they tried to actually analyze this. Like what is the breakdown of people doing what? And in the case of the, the military, uh, involvement in Vietnam and World War II, um, I can certainly understand the sort of concept of somebody who has experienced killing people coming back and doing that when they get home. And there's certainly been a lot of movies made and books written about that subject. Whether it's actually true, though, the statistic was, uh, according to this article in Wikipedia, it basically said that there was not any statistical difference between somebody who has been to war or not in terms of whether they're likely to be a serial killer. So I don't know. We might be missing something here. I mean, uh, it could be just that the, the culture is just fucked up and then the societies yeah. are not okay. in good shape. Let, let me take a step back and, tr- and try to be more clear about what my point is. It's not to lump every to lump all these characters in necessarily as, as one type. That's that's what the the mythology around them tries to do. They try to establish that there is a serial killer type, that there is a profile. And what I would say is that you have to look at these events uh, individually. You have you, you can't just say, oh, it's another serial killer. It fits the type. It's the same thing they do with these school shootings. It's, oh, we've established now that school shootings are just a thing. So there's no need to look into an individual shooting to establish why this took place. It's just an accepted thing now. Same is right. true, of course, of, of terrorism. Yeah, and, and the media plays a big role in screwing people up because the, the other sort of presumption about serial killers is they're all white males. Uh, this article, again, looked at this sort of thing statistically, and it said there's really no difference between the likelihood of being at white or, or black if you look at the size of the population because there's just that many more white people. But the reason the media fixates on it is because the white guys, the theory is they, they tend to go for white girls and so because america is sort of very upset when a beautiful white woman is killed the media fixates on that and so then you get the the white male as the killer well i mean also going back to an earlier point the uh the white male serial killers are a lot more personable uh when you're looking for uh, somebody's face to make a netflix documentary that you can have really frankly bizarre reactions to uh in the uh, the pages of jezebel yeah, and they're probably smarter. I mean, the average also, IQ of serial killers is supposed to be around 90. Uh, but, you know, Ted Bundy obviously was a little above that. So there's there's going to be that sort of charisma that the media likes. Yeah, I mean, I think that you mentioned, like, the, their average IQ is 90. I mean, the media has also built up this myth. And the Zodiac Killer is one of these myths. There's actually very little evidence that the Zodiac Killer was a single cohesive person doing these things over the course of like 20 years. Um, yeah, was he ever almost, caught? I mean, it, it there's no, like it there's almost no evidence. Yeah. There's almost no evidence. In fact, there is none uh, that's concrete that it's the same person. Uh, you know, 
one of the first it's a brand that was established zodiac i think is was the model for this it's you you create this idea oh these random people are being killed and i think the trick that was being played here is that a lot of these people were you know because you're unleashing very deranged people and and giving them free reign to to murder right i mean we've talked about this before this idea of americans incidentally creating brands typically law enforcement in in uh, not necessarily um, uh, collusion but certainly in tandem with the media creating uh, a wrapper for something a convenient wrapper so we've talked about this especially in the case of the national crime syndicate or uh, colloquially known as the mafia the mafia whatever that means no one the italian mafia completely fucking dumb right but it's synced into the average american mindset then the phrase national crime syndicate is also sort of a brand that was imbued on these people Uh, we've talked about this with al-qaeda al-qaeda is essentially a brand uh if you ever watch the adam curtis documentary the power of nightmares he goes into detail on how this brand was constructed by the fbi and then the media in the 90s this is a, a basically a creation of the fbi field office in new york and the uh, new york district prosecutor actually the new york i'm sorry the federal prosecutor for the, for new york um created this identity in uh in, in tandem with um sort of shaky witness testimony from um some suspected aides of islamic terrorists to build this idea of this thing called al-qaeda uh, and as you can see, the same thing with the Zodiac. And you can say the same thing with um, the Unabomber. You know, it's, in a way, it's, uh, first of all, removing the character of the serial killer from the person or people committing the acts. So it becomes a mythic-like figure, a monster. Yes, we got to it, it, find the monster. This is exactly right, Hans. And what it also does is allows for the total railroading of these people because you establish it that these people are all uh, already convicted by the media. Once you have this brand, you attach this brand to them, then they're the guy who did it. They're the lone serial killer. You never look into their connections, who who they might have been operating right. with, because part of the serial killer profile is that they act alone. That's the whole. That's the premise. You know, they act alone. It, these mean, people, these hacks that get on these these shows, these documentaries, and talk mm-hmm. about it, that, that's the thing. They always say they act alone. They didn't. The, the Hillside Stranglers weren't acting alone, and they might have been acting with other people as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the most recent one, the Golden Gate Killer, they had some DNA evidence, and they were able to get him on, I think, uh, one or two of the murders, but he's effectively being convicted of several. He's been convicted of a string of murders over the course of almost 20 years. There's always, there's also this trend of they all they always do this on nearly 20-year period or 20-year period, and then they give up. Um, but, you know, he, a lot of the evidence against him was circumstantial. Um, a lot of it wasn't very useful to the prosecutors, but the prosecutors threw it on him anyways. Why not? And it fits this brand. The Golden Gate Killer. We're prosecuting the Golden Gate Killer. We're not prosecuting prosecuting whatever his real name is. We're prosecuting the brand, the monster. Exactly. And and I, you take- know, you can you can make some like freshman level tier psychology analysis of the, every society. We live in a society, so every society needs monsters or things to slay. Um, 
but what's going on here is a bit more, uh, first of all, cynical than that. It's mostly a way to make money. This is really just a money-making opportunity. This is a branding opportunity. Well, it's the um, symbiotic relationship depicted in Natural Born right. Killers. Like people right. get rich off of this. Yeah. Uh, psychiatrists, hack writers, journalists, Hollywood, uh, uh, police, various police chiefs make their yeah. whole careers off of these. Yeah, you know, much of this I, I think is not. It, it sounds freshman tier to be saying, "Oh, it's just the media, man," but it is. Much just, of this is is effectively, you know, the end game of just sort of general media greed. For how exactly do we pitch what's going on right now to the average listener or the average viewer? And and assuming, you know, ignoring that some of these are perhaps the result of various occult organizations that are operating as uh, organized crime in conjunction with the U.S. government. Just, just imagine, you know, you're a powerful person with various enemies, perhaps some whore that is, you know, talking a little too much, or uh, some somebody who hasn't paid you what they owe you for drugs or pornography or et cetera, et cetera, and you have an atmosphere of murder where just people are randomly being killed, and there's a signature to it. You know, you just you drop some kind of card, or you you mutilate the body in a certain way, you dump a corpse in a certain location, and then boom, it's it's the product of this this branded figure. It's a it's a perfect yeah. opportunity if you're somebody who needs some some people to be killed to do it. Yeah, and and I think the conception of the serial killer as a misunderstood mastermind, or 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 a uh, uh, very high IQ psychopath is very prevalent for, for whatever reason in media depictions of serial killers. Oh, they're just more Dec- interesting. I mean, nobody I mean, was, yeah, I mean, is inspired by some moron who basically just likes the girl across the street. Yeah, that, that's know. why you have like the wire with, you know, black gangsters with master plans, quoting Shakespeare and whatnot, instead of, you know, shooting each other over chicken bones. Yeah. I mean, it Dexter, uh, which I will admit I watched is is a famous example of this. Dexter is um, is basically built on the premise that Miami is producing uh, hundreds of serial killers annually. If there are hundreds of serial killers running around annually, I mean, in just one city. You, this would not be a, a country you would recognize. It would well, Miami is pretty Miami weird. though. Yeah, but okay, that so is that is where true story. The guy who got high on bath salts and took all his clothes off ended up eating another homeless person and then dying on the uh, okay, subway so tracks. Th- there's there's goofy shit, but but come on, if there were hundreds of serial killers running around a major American city constantly, and it was a constant thing going on, you, you know, we would have a very different conception of life in the United States. There was one uh, sort of statistically significant event that um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember the chart seeing it. It was basically like a hockey stick. Uh, The number of people that were uh, incarcerated uh, in the 80s, and then if if you go back 10 years, the number of people that were let out of mental hospitals. Uh, So that sort of 10-year lag of basically people getting dumped out of these mental institutions, letting 
getting put onto the streets. And, you know, I'm sure there was plenty of uh, people looking to recruit them uh, as well. But I think a lot of these people were just mentally unstable. And that could explain some of the, the violence and misdeeds in the 70s. Look, we, we know that the CIA operates domestically. You know, the, the things that they do in other countries, they do here. And what they would do in places like South America when they created their death squads was they would teach people how to torture and how to murder in the most grotesque fashion imaginable. And they would they would take people from who fit the type, who uh, were easily brought into something like this because they underwent trauma as children themselves. And they would teach them to be more efficient killers and apply psychological conditioning and pay techniques to that. I, well. I think I think that part of my my take on a lot of this too, a lot of the you know um, fascination with this idea of there's an army of domestic serial killers, and you get that notion from CSI and Law and Order and all these shows, uh, is that it distracts you from how the world really works. You know, a real serial killing would be um, those two Scandinavian um, girls who inexplicably travel to rural Morocco to vacation, uh, I think, at the end of last year, and were promptly decapitated uh, by some locals. People have been getting decapitated, you know, Westerners have been getting decapitated in rural Morocco for a long time. That's just a thing that happens. How much play did that get in the media? Uh, very little. Is that ever going to be adapted into anything for domestic consumption anywhere? Probably not. Yeah, That's or, something far, far worse and far more enlightening into how the world really works than this notion of there's an army of serial killers in every American city. And if we don't have our high-tech... CSI teams uh, with giant black budgets constantly reapproved every year. They're going to kill you and your kids at, the, at a moment's notice. Well, and the other thing, I mean, when you're building up a mythos, you need to actually uh, kind of characterize the mythos. So they all have their weird quirks that are, you know, kind of. Uh, designed to fantasize the whole endeavor. So the the thing in Dexter for anyone who hasn't watched the show is oh my god it's it's a recursive serial killer. It's a ki serial killer who only kills serial killers because he's good. Uh, it's never you know the the kind of um, senseless aspect that kind of permeates a lot of actual empirical American violence, not senseless in the sense of, you know, Oh, why did, you know, why did they need to die? But senseless, you know, kind of a grotesque, uh, uh, randomness or things that things that are sort of inevitable, but, uh, nevertheless um sort of uh their particular circumstances are up in the air like if you hang around enough really bad drug neighborhoods something bad is going to happen eventually and it's not surprising that you know you hang around there and some psycho like lures you in while you're turning tricks into some alley and you're another od that's not necessarily the best drama. So to construct these weird characterizations to show, you know, the uh, 
like establish something about whatever character you're trying to mythologize. It's, I mean, it's another, just another kind of weird way that Hollywood script writing warps your view of reality that sometimes things actually don't happen for particular reasons, just in the wrong place at the wrong time because you hang out in the wrong place. Right. I think, I think things happen. I, I think that things violence does happen for specific reasons there are of course wrong place wrong time somebody has to feed type situations but that's but that's a huge common meme with especially within dexter and you mentioned hannibal (laughs) hannibal i think hannibal is is mostly like uh whatever that that guy's name brian fuller i think it's just him sort of having fun a lot of really weird ways but hannibal is definitely a show where it really is just wrong place wrong time for pretty much every victim of all the killers well it's funny you say that because you know the real i mean the people with the highest body counts in america uh, the biggest domestic killers are people like uh, lewis buchalter or you know Bugsy Siegel or Martin right. Goldstein or right. uh, Harry Strauss. Harry Strauss probably killed over 500 people. Okay. Or like, what's the and, Iceman and killer? What's, the what's guy interesting who though for the, Wait, the Gambino crime, the Iceman killer, uh, Kaminsky, Richard Stuklas, or uh, yeah, some, something he's like some Polak. He works like for the Gambino family or something, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, you know, I think they only ever like uh, successfully got him on one or two murders. But he had, he copped to having killed over a hundred people or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. And when I say like wrong place, wrong time, it's like it, it's like a a very banal, uh, you know, very banal targeting. Yeah, I guess maybe that's a good. It, it's not because there's this other thing where when you're trying to make a very nihilistic movie or a very edgy movie, you'll really play up like the senseless and random nature of it. Um. You know, kind of like the uh, the the Cohn brothers' uh, dialogue in uh, No Country for Old Men, um, when he's asking him to flip the coin. Um, that that aspect also doesn't seem to really run true. Like, there's an internal logic usually, but it's not necessarily significant. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the greatest examples in my mind that I know of of like this meme of wrong place, wrong time as obvious cover for something. Um, the zebra killers were these two guys and actually four technically that uh, was mostly two, um, that ran around the SF area in, uh, the, the, I think 1973, they killed the former San Francisco mayor, Art Agnos. Want to know how they killed him? Well, Art Agnos just happened to be on a sidewalk after uh, a meeting over on uh, Potrero Hill, and he was you know, he was still kind of a political operative in the Bay Area. Well, he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and got shot twice in the chest at point blank range and then double tapped in the forehead. Just that happened. Was, yeah, total, it just you know shit just happens. I guess total right? coincidence. And they just blame it, and you know it doesn't fit the mo of their other crimes. I mean. The other crimes these guys are convicted of have to do with you mostly using a machete or using multiple machetes and hacking limbs off, hacking heads off. They just happen to pick this major political operative who had a lot of uh, 
weird connections to the Italian crime families. Uh, <laughs> was like, it actually like them, the first, or do they just blame like them? One of the it? first murders of the uh, the so-called BTK killer, the Bind Torture Kill murderer, uh, Dennis Ratter, I believe his name was. Uh, one of the first murders, if not the, I think it was the first murder, was that of a man known as uh, Joseph Otero, who was a military intelligence operative. And they, he, this, this guy is basically a commando, and this schmuck comes in and murders him and his entire family. And it was uh, people who knew him said that he was in, in fear for his life prior to this murder. So this is a trained, this is a trained killer himself. Who manages to be his have his entire family overpowered by this one guy? I mean, it's not out of the question, I guess, if you get the drop on him. Mm, not if he's uh, not if he's expecting that. I mean, I, I find it highly implausible. Just just it, like it would be the, worth investigating in a more uh, a more suspicious society, I guess, more suspicious <laughs> suspicious uh, local PD. Take like uh, take Richard Speck too, who managed to subdue uh, nine women. This is one of the early ones. Uh, he he subdued nine nursing students in Chicago, and managed to spend four and a half hours or so murdering all of them one by one when they were able to freely move around in this room, and uh, you know none of them were even apparently tried to escape. And he yeah, I mean, one of them. there's a psychological aspect to that to especially with you know it it's probably pretty plausible that you know one man could like overpower two women um, even if right but i'm saying like depending on what their sort of psychological state was it's not necessarily out of the question that you know, there is this this sort of uh, a reflex where when people sense that they're near death, like they they don't actually try to fight back; they go limp. It's a well known thing. That's why, um, if you look up the uh, the CIA or FBI, I forget which uh, interrogation manual, they're like, "Don't threaten to kill them." Like they just go gray. They stop talking. They don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, you it comes, keep... comes back after each woman, you know, having mutilated them and murdered them, covered in blood. And uh, I guess it's all—it's also kind of implausible how uh, there was a videotape that came out of him in prison in like 1988, and he's flashing hundred-dollar bills and has a mountain of cocaine and as well as uh, uh, breasts. He got hormone, some kind of hormone treatment in prison. This is one of the most notorious. Murders in Chicago, almost notorious American murders at that point when he committed the allegedly committed the crimes, and he seemed to be uh, well rewarded in his time in prison. I guess you got to know a guy. Uh, same same is true also of uh, Frazier, who's was allegedly the only one responsible for a very thorough and professional murder uh, of the. Fan, uh, that family in Santa Cruz, uh, doc, Dr. Vincent Ota. Uh, it, it, it's like two different weapons were used in this. I mean, what I'm getting at, there's a lot of these anomalies where there's reason to believe that you have some individual who uh, is taking the fall. And I mean, I'll get into Gacy in more detail, but I'd also like to mention uh, one of the longest running murders, at least I think, I think, uh, the what's his name the Green River Killer 
Gary uh, Gary Ridgway. I, I think he his alleged reign of murder lasted longer. But prior to that point, it was Henry Lee Lucas. Are you guys familiar with Lucas? I am not. No. Uh, yeah, Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, he he uh, basically got involved with some kind of some kind of cult in the uh, Everglades, where he was uh, taught various techniques uh, of murder, and he actually claimed at one point. Uh, that he was doing contract killings in addition to these murders, that they were political hits, that he killed various foreign dignitaries, uh, politicians, wealthy businessmen, and that he also killed other people on the side. And he also had an accomplice, by the way, uh, named Otis Toole, who was uh, himself something of an occultist. I mean, they had all the typical... You know, upbringing of trauma, you know, sexual abuse. Uh, uh, but uh, Henry uh, also claimed to be a close friend of Jim Jones. In addition to being a, claiming to be a close friend of Jim Jones, he also claimed to uh, have chartered a plane to Guyana to personally deliver the alleged cyanide. Jim Jones is also uh, well a very well connected person. Yeah, I mean this is uh, this idea that you pin your outstanding cases on whoever is uh, who whoever you can plausibly pin them on, which in the case of serial killers is like you know whatever cold killings by strangulation or whatever. That's so common as to be a trope now. That's a that's a plot element of of actually almost every fictional depiction of a uh, a serial killer that I can think of, uh, and uh, sort of an implication of a bunch of documentaries. Usually, the the way that they set it up rhetorically is that they do it as the one two of oh look at these incompetent cops they didn't catch this guy, oh now they caught him so they're going to try to you know salvage as much of their honor out of the situation by pinning as much as they can on him. And it's a similar narrative to intelligence failures uh, as far as the incompetence of the local police constantly picking somebody up or letting someone go for, you know, murdering their mother and um, sodomizing her corpse, things like this, you know, serve a couple of years, you know, you're good to go but right back on the streets. Uh, the other well, side that, of that, that's not the cops. That's, that's a bizarre aspect of the entire U.S. criminal justice system circa the 70s. Yeah, the, the I mean, it was criminal, a it was a wild time. You could just like mail bombs to people, be out in a year and a half, and then get a professorship at Berkeley. Yeah, you guys Chicago, ever see the- Bill Ayers. I mean, that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like the the society just kind of like took all the brakes off, and there was a lot of drugs and a lot of uh, bad stuff going on, and people were running around going crazy. And the other thing that's uh, sort of uh, chronologically distinct about the 70s is that. Uh, th- there was still stuff going on and through the 90s, but when 9-11 happened, the serial killer kind of went away and the FBI was sort of tasked with anti-terrorism. Now, whether that's actually because there's less serial killings or because the sort of modus operandi of the U.S. government is to no, it, it's, get everybody scared about terrorism, I don't know. But that It's a new brand, just like school shootings are a new brand. Uh, ser- serial killing lives on as uh, entertainment. It, it 
it's not a it's not the it doesn't occupy the headlines anymore. That's that's ma- the new mass shootings are sco- or new mass killings are school shootings and yeah. terrorism. But why have are women attracted the- to them? I have my sort of canned answer, but I want to hear what you guys. <laughs> I mean, think. like, okay, how how far deep do you want to go down the rabbit well, hole start of simple. describing like like a uh, an actual you know reasoning system behind this thing? <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be reasoned. It's just like, what is the instinct going on? I mean, you know, I, it's a bad boy, obviously, but you know, can't you pick you know somebody who's a little bit uh, less likely to murder you, maybe? Uh, in a romantic fling. I, I just don't get the sort of biological sort of evolutionary fact that they like these bad boys in particular. Well, and it's well how much, how much he, can he really love you and desire you if he's not ready to kill you? Yeah, fair question. <laughs> I mean, that is like Still processing that is legitimately that, but okay. the point of most Scottish murder ballads. Like, they're murder ballads, not murder some other genre of music. Murder for her is one thing. Murder her after raping you typically is what happens is not something a woman evolutionarily speaking is oh, no, okay. incentivized so, so, to be attracted uh, to that best murder ballad IMO uh, is a uh, Knoxville girl um, which uh, actually is not a, an ancient murder ballad that uh, it's like dates to 1930s or something in the U S it's, it's fairly recent. I think the tune is older than that, but um, the the basic plot of the uh, of the uh, the song is um, he he was dating this uh, this girl and uh, uh, he he saw that she had a dark and roving eye so she uh, she didn't uh, return his affections exclusively so he uh, murders her and there's a really graphic depiction in the lyrics uh, murders her in the woods and throws her in the river um, and. I mean that that like you know that's a sort of a different thing than the whole serial killer thing, but it, it's like yeah you know somebody who loves me so much that if uh, that if he ever lost me he'd rather you know murder suicide than lose me like that that has a sort of intuitive appeal to it mm-hmm. the the whole you know serial serial killer per se thing it's a little bit I mean it you just kind of uh it troubles you less once you sort of no longer ascribe logical qualities to women it's like oh like, i mean is it the fact know, that the media gives them so much attention you. like it's like obviously it's like women like famous guys because they're social proof and it's the fact that they associate the fact that oh i was chosen by a famous guy is suddenly i'm attracted to him uh, that that I could understand as well. Yeah, and you also have to look at the specific sub demographic here because it's not like it's not like Angela Lansbury readers are like fantasizing about the protagonist there. I I mean I don't know. I guess I've never asked them that question. But if you, if you look at you know the people thirsting over the uh, the Ted Bundy uh, biopic or documentary or whatever. I guess there's a biopic coming out shortly, which will lead to another wave of this, uh, these eruptions. It's primarily the, the 20 something socially atomized box wine and Xanax, uh, like future cat ladies of America crowd. So, I mean, their psychology is screwed up enough to begin with that trying to trace the specific causal mechanisms there is just, 
you're really uh, you're really plunging into the labyrinth. Have you guys ever seen the film uh, Murder by Decree? It was a Sherlock Holmes movie, and it was about uh, Jack the Ripper. And basically, the the plot is spoilers. Uh, is that the Jack the Ripper was a was a fiction created by the elite, and that really. Uh, and there were all these Masonic pretenses of it because it was basically the local, you know, the, the, the secret society, the lodge was trying to cover up an illicit pregnancy and of, uh, I think the Royal family. So they were murdering all the, someone from the Royal family. If I, it's been a few years since I've seen the film, but someone from the Royal family, uh, had an affair with a prostitute and the prostitute ended up giving birth to their child. So, all these murders, uh, these Jack the Ripper murders, were actually murders of whores that knew her, so that it was it was a cleanup operation. Makes sense. There, there's a really good um, uh, TV miniseries thing, uh, Red Riding, um, that has a similar um, sort of hypothesis, or it's not hypothesis because it's not necessarily meant seriously, but um, you know. A similar uh, premise uh, for the uh, the Yorkshire ripping, uh, the Yorkshire Ripper uh, killer, uh, that uh, this sort of serial killing was um, some sort of uh, aspect of and also cover up of uh, corruption in the local elite. Um, but if you like really moody, uh, dark uh, dramas with uh, accents that are barely comprehensible, that's a that's a good one. Since we're talking about movies, um, you guys have probably all seen Death Wish. This is not exactly the canonical serial killer type, but you know when Nick asked everybody pick somebody, I'm I'm always hesitant to pick people I find uh, somewhat disgusting, and so I, I sort of searched my brain for some instance of a serial murder story where I actually like the protagonist, and in this case, uh, portrayed by Charles Bronson, I can get behind the character. His basic uh, story arc is that he's sort of a uh, naive um, cosmopolitan type who believes in you know giving people a chance, and then one day his uh, wife and uh, daughter are raped, and his wife dies from shock, and his daughter's never the same, and he's basically living in New York City. Uh, he's he's a successful architect, and uh, getting into a little detail of his background, he had actually been raised with guns, but. Then I think his uh, his father had like died in a hunting accident, so he never touched guns. But this event, of course, makes him reconsider that, and so he goes basically on a vigilantism spree after the filth of New York City of the '70s, and he basically just cleans up the mess that the cops can't do. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely this element in America too of vigilante justice. It's a huge part, I think, of American psychology. A lot of it you can trace back to. These early, um, what you probably call pulp fic, like pulp writings, pulp fiction, you know, these like penny penny books you'd buy in um, late nineteenth century America about the Wild West. Um, but there's been a lot of work done about, I think even Thomas, uh, uh, who's the the libertarian uh, guy, Nick Thomas, what? What's Tom? Tom Woods. Tom Woods. Tom Woods. Oh. He's done this before, like the myth of the Wild Wild West. And he's talking about it's basically just urbanites coping with the fact that uh, urban America, especially after the Civil War, was a complete 
dumpster fire. It was full of like all these Irish and Slavic immigrants that were burning shit down all the time and murdering each other in massive numbers. And um, basically, you know, they invented this myth of the wild, wild west and all these uh, all these incidences of all these highwaymen and murderers and all these lawmen that were tough and, you know, didn't take any prisoners and hung everybody. And um, a lot of it was this, like, uh, it was the literati of these urban hellscapes who were imagining a way to get out of sort of the egalitarianism they had created by letting in half of Ireland. Yeah, didn't I see a statistic somewhere that the actual murder count in the West at the time was not very high? And that could have been, you know, bullshit too. Because it was tiny. Reporting yeah, of the, 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 the statistics. Are wicked expensive. Right, but I mean, also statistics are also expensive to collect in a place like that. So I don't know, but at least I had seen somebody attempt to measure it, and it actually wasn't that bad. I like think when you that have the option of just fucking off to the next town, there's really very little incentive for murder. Like you just leave. Like that's what Russians do. Like you have to really piss off a Russian before you actually get into a serious fight with them. It's mostly cold shoulder, and they just leave. The same thing in the Old West. Like, if you have irreconcilable differences with somebody in whatever, you know, gold rush town, you go to the next town. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely this idea in American media, too, about the vigilante justice bringer as sort of this figure that'll do what we won't. Well, why are we... I mean, it, it seems like a way of trying to frame serial killing as good if it solves the problems of urban America, right? Death Wish is a good example. The Punisher is probably the most pervasive uh, archetype, and that comes from comic books, but it's, you know, seated in numerous... Yeah, it's seated into numerous uh, other characters over the years. It's been numerous movies, numerous TV shows. Um, Judge Dredd, although I think a British creation initially... Yeah, is, is very a, much a, go ahead well i the uh judge dread is funny because it's a parody uh the punisher is bizarre because like you see shit like the uh the uh the thin blue line defacement of the american flag with the punisher logo uh displayed over it yeah i mean the, the punisher we should maybe get into that a little bit the punisher is probably um what I think the liberal elite in this country would like serial killers to be. And that would be someone who is ugly enough and mean enough to solve the problems that they don't know how to solve. Because in their minds, you know, the problems can come down to just removing populations or trimming populations. You know, if you if you really are thinking like them, populations are mendable, they're killable, they're movable. They're not really that big a deal when you think of them abstractly. So the existence of someone like the Punisher who just roams around America, roams around America's city like a, cities like a nomad, just murders endlessly, plots these tightly knit and massive murder sprees against you know criminal networks and petty thieves and rapists and misogynists and whatever. Right? Um, you can see a lot of like this. Uh, liberal urbanite coming through in this this like desire to have a, like a good old boy from the American Midwest who goes to Vietnam and comes back crazy 
and just wants to kill every criminal he can get his hands on. They don't know how to solve their own problems. They don't know how to solve the problems of America. So in their mind, if we can just make a good serial killer, we can solve the problems of America that way. And Judge Dredd is a parody of that. Judge Dredd is really this idea that America will be the first place to uh, enact on-the-spot justice-giving because this, the court system will become too bogged down. Um, America will be too overscaled. It won't be able to handle the crime. It won't be able to ha- handle the pettiness of everything. So it'll have to bring about um, legalized punishers in order to just keep things from totally imploding at any given moment. I'm curious why you think that's just a liberal thing. If you ever look into um, the research of Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, I don't know how he's pronounced this, H-I-D-T. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, a black man, I should should add. He... uh, He's talked about the, you know, these uh, personalities of political types, but what he's emphasized is that uh, reluctance to violence, real reluctance to violence, internal reluctance to violence, and uh, empathy, are incredibly correlated with people who would fall on the right or conservatives. People who will go online and talk about how they'll kick your ass in the next civil war, those people are actually very, very reluctant to get into a fight. They're very reluctant to hurt someone, and to kill someone is an incredibly difficult thing for them to do. Um, and I'm not saying it would be easier for people on the other side to kill someone, but their notions of how you go about doing that, about the act of doing it, theoretically doing it, they're much less, um, or they're much more predisposed to thinking along those lines that it could be done, that it might maybe it ought to be done, that empathy might be wrong in some cases. That's how you wind up with sort of this you know, New York comic book uh, industry creation of a character like the Punisher, someone who um, wouldn't really exist in real life because it wouldn't be some uh, conservative from the Midwest who becomes a, a, an urban dweller that murders uh, criminals, petty criminals all day, and no one ever stops him who forms this sort of weird relationship with the local police and they sort of accept him as doing what he has to do. Uh, That would never happen. It's just this strange idea that if we make the good serial killer, and it's never calling him a serial killer. There's nothing, there's not, it's always a vigilante. I mean, I don't really know what else you would call him. You know, the idea what we've been talking about tonight is that serial killers, in theory, have an internal logic to them. Well, the internal logic is that this person is a criminal, they've done X, Y, and Z, and therefore death is the appropriate response. I wanted to mention, since you're sort of talking about someone brought up race uh, at some point in politics, I would add, too, that I think part of this is a way of doing organized crime violence, political violence, uh, in white middle class and upper middle class areas. Because no one's going to bat an eye if some Negro uh, gangbanger disappears. Same is true of Mexicans. You know, the, the violence, and some of these people are powerful people. It happens all the time in Mexico. Uh, it's not hard to make somebody disappear because it's already established. But when people start doing children of the 
of the upper class and the middle class, white people, uh, Jews, start disappearing, uh, people ask questions. The system has to kick into gear to pretend to, to care or to look for them. So I think, I mean, you see the stuff taking place, the early genesis of this was uh, in very wealthy areas. And a lot of these killers, they were, they were operating in very wealthy areas. Albeit, oftentimes it was the runaway. I shouldn't say very wealthy. A lot of his middle class, but it was white people areas. A lot of times, it's the the neglected children of these families that end up in sex trafficking rings and prostitution rings. They have people who are going to ask questions, you know, like Sharon. For instance, Sharon Tate's father uh, was military intelligence. So, so do maybe, we want to? Uh... Yeah, maybe we can get to the DC snipers because I think that kind of encapsulates what we're trying to move towards which is that a lot of this isn't real or isn't real in the way you might think it's real it's easy to railroad to pin you know you, you create a brand of a given murder and yeah. now you have cover for people who disappear and one commonality in a lot of these cases is that no one is very interested in these people's associates and when they claim uh, that they have other people that were working with them, then you have the creep psychiatrist step in to say, oh, no, he's crazy. You don't need to worry about that. It's the serial killer profile is that everybody operates alone. Before we get into the DC snipers, I want to talk a little bit about John Wayne Gacy, probably one of the most repugnant uh, and perverted of the famous serial killers in American history. And I think everyone is aware of uh, Gacy being fairly well connected within the Democrat Party, uh, even going so far as to take that picture with Rosalind Carter. Uh, and keep in mind, Gacy had a criminal record uh, prior. He had a lot of lenient treatment. Right? He uh, was in all likelihood running a homosexual and a heterosexual prostitution ring out of a motel. That was one of uh, his er his early in his early days, and he would have people who were working there that he would be uh, trafficking and sodomizing, and in all likelihood, uh, what Gacy was was sort of a white uh, king. Then the, we we discussed the Franklin's the Franklin scandal. Uh, what's his What's his name first? Uh, Larry King, Lawrence King, Lawrence E. King, that uh, Gacy was some kind of uh, the guy in charge of the of the ring, and that those bodies in his crawl space, uh, there's no reason to believe that he killed all of those all of those people. You know, there's reason to believe he killed some of them, but Gacy, like many other serial killers, seems to have a, a lot of discrepancies when describing the crime scene to who he killed and it was very convenient for them to pin this on Gacy as to not have to look further for instance he had a notebook that would have in theory been of a lot of interest to a genuine investigation but none of this was followed up on none of the his associates who covered for them were ever really seriously investigated or arrested uh, so something to think about yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy's connections, I think before we go to the uh, the DC snipers require a little bit more um, exposition. But I think 
if you're going to, uh, I think we have an odd circumstance here where we have a contemporary American serial killer um, with a um, pretty well-known body count. Um, the implication of uh, a few more um, that we don't know about that we actually know his identity, uh, and uh, he's still walking around um, until uh, he gets another notch in his belt, so to speak. Uh, have you guys been reading about the uh, the saga of Ed Buck? Yeah, yeah. Wait, are, are, you, are you trying to move donor? on from uh, Gacy, or are you bringing it back to Gacy? Because there are a few, th- few more things I want to say about Gacy, depending oh, on Oh, yeah, they're know. very similar, I think. Yeah, finish up with Gacy. Okay, so uh, a few things about Gacy. Gacy's home was uh, searched several times. I mean, people were were following him because, as is often the case, as these things start to spiral out of control, you get a few people who have family that care about them, a few victims. And so there was a lot of pressure on the police to you know do something to investigate this guy. He was accused. And his house was was searched, and his house was notoriously tidy, but there were all sorts of, you would assume to be incriminating objects, such as um, rings belonging to you know high school students, uh, things of that sort. Uh, of course, the house all smelling like lime uh, apparently is not suspicious enough. And one thing that Gacy had said was, when he was when he was eventually in in police custody and be on trial, you know, he claimed, as many do, that he had some kind of multiple personality disorder. And this is something that the creep psychiatrists are like to dismiss immediately. Uh, they just did the same thing with Bundy. They don't like to go down that road, and I would speculate that one of the main reasons they don't like to go down that road is that they don't want to open the uh, proverbial MK Ultra box. But one thing worth noting before we move on is just that he, one of these personalities he claimed to have, was a man named James Hanley, or sorry, Jack uh, Jack Hanley. And one of the last ro- rebuttal witnesses uh, in the Gacy trial was a man named James Hanley. And he was he was there to discredit Gacy's claim of having an alter personality. And what's especially interesting about that is that a name the man the Hanley the last name Hanley was apparently allegedly being being uh, searched for by the police for over a year. And Jack uh, James Hanley the the last witness the last rebuttal witness. Uh, was actually a uh, plainclothes Chicago Police Department detective. Yeah, I mean, Cook County. <laughs> you know, the the cops in Cook County fall into two buckets. They're either, <laughs> they're either you know, one bad day away from being the Punisher at all times, or they're <laughs> on the take, or both. But there's there were, there's a weird or, or they just history. don't give a shit. Or they and, yeah. Well, I guess there's a third bucket, or they don't give a fuck. But there's definitely two big buckets in Cook County of guys that are on the take and doing something really bad, or guys that are about ready to like kill the next black that looks at them wrong. And G- Gacy had also uh, claimed to have been uh, previously an aide to Richard Daly. 
and he was uh, also uh, friends with the Illinois Attorney General and you know local media people, columnists and anchors and people of the like. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, he you know, this, also this is, on that Chicago police on the Chicago police report, there were items that blacked out. Uh, they were they were claimed to be F- FBI interest, and I should also finally note that. Uh, Gacy himself claimed that he worked uh, for the syndicate, uh, and he used that word specifically, and that he was a cousin of none other than Tony Accardo. This has uh, echoes of, obviously, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, Who was the the British guy who was knighted and was a a huge part of the um, British upper political circle who had been raping kids for like 30 years. Anyone know? Who, anyone remind, remind uh, Jimmy that? Seville, Jimmy Seville. Yep. yep. Yeah. This has, you know, obvious echoes of that. And I'm sure there are numerous other cases our listeners will find of, um, people tied to, uh, political movements or people tied to just, uh, political operatives or political hierarchies, upper levels of political hierarchies that are involved in, um, sex trafficking, serial killing, you know, serial child abuse, things like that. Yeah, and it's a convenient thing to take this pre-established brand, just like the pre-established brand of the mafia, tack it on to somebody like Gacy and say, okay, it fits the type. There's nothing further we need to look at. We don't need to explore his connections. We don't even need to go through his his address book and follow up on these. There, he had these names marked with an H. And... No, apparently nobody was interested in that because, of course, he if he's a serial killer, then he's a lone actor who's driven to kill for purely carnal reasons, and that there there is no there is no uh, business element to it and no political element to it. So move along. Yeah, but I think Hank mentioned Ed Buck. <laughs> yeah, I'm not familiar. Who is busy oh. trying to genocide the uh, the youthful gay black male population of Los Angeles? Yeah, Ed Buck is a weird character. So I've I only started looking into him seriously uh, in terms of his background, as opposed to the little blurb that he always gets when uh, whenever a uh, dead black prostitute uh, male, of course, uh, shows up in his apartment, which is twice now. Uh, it turns out it's difficult to figure out where his kind of ongoing money comes from. Uh, but he, he was originally an actor and fashion model. Um, he made some amount of money in some kind of a sweetheart deal for, uh, a, uh, basically a data contractor with some sort of a, a government contract for, uh, for driver's license, uh, data, um, to sell to, uh, insurance companies. But he's moved to uh, West Hollywood, and he uh, was sort of prior and uh, contemporaneously a, a big deal in Democratic donor and fundraising circles. And the amounts of money that he's actually personally giving, as far as I can tell, are fairly minor. It's like, you know, the two grand a piece, which makes you actually a pretty big fish in terms of local and state uh, politics. Like for low five figures cumulatively, you can have the state chairman of whatever like pick up the phone when you call them. 
but nonetheless, it's it's a little bit weird uh, in terms of why this guy in particular has uh, political connections beyond the kind of paltry sums of money. But what seems to have happened is he has a uh, he has some sort of a fetish for finding uh, black gay prostitutes. Um, the one from uh, Minneapolis, I believe, and he was flown in, um, and the other from his uh, his local neighborhood, taking them to his uh, apartment, uh, drugging them. Um, and uh, doing whatever, uh, and eventually uh, causing them to uh, to overdose. This has happened twice now, <laughs> uh, to the point where it's like, okay, I mean, I was reliably informed that prostitution is still a crime in California, even if uh, you know there's not probable cause to arrest him for actual murder and i'm pretty sure that flying somebody in from across state lines in order to commit prostitution with them is a federal crime he's got at least two bodies to his name and a uh, an active uh active uh history uh, i guess you might say of uh, this sort of conduct um, that, as far as we know, hasn't uh, risen to murder, um, aside from these last couple of cases, uh, or I should say death. Uh, so why is Ed Buck still a free man? Friends, there's uh, many abortions. such cases. I mean, Ed Buck is, many uh, such cases. is a free man be- partially because he's given money to Adam Schiff, the uh, googly-eyed congressman that is trying to sink Donald Trump constantly. And the California Democratic Party chair, amongst numerous other, and Clinton, I think. But I mean, you know, that seems like a really cheap buy-in. Well, it get so I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, as, as a result of living in Southern California, I have to hear about the numerous scandals that go on here. And um, there's been uh, like a, a new Me Too thing going on in West Hollywood, which is where Buck lives. Um, West Hollywood, first of all, uh, if anyone listening is familiar with this area, they know it's fag central. Okay. There's two areas of LA that are fag central now, Silver Lake and West Hollywood. Uh, both places were shitholes until the nineties. And then both places had massive amounts of gays move in and sort of clean the places up. And it's full of trendy hipster cafes and furniture stores and all this shit. But it's a well-known area for gay pornography filming. It's a well-known area for um, drug dealing as well. Like, uh, let's say, high-cost drug dealing, cocaine predominantly. Um, and it's known for gays, huge gay pride festival, so on. The mayor of uh, of uh, West Hollywood is is a very well known gay named John Duran, and um, John Duran has been uh, basically accused of uh, effectively engaging in um, near rape with a couple staffers. Um, and is known to be active in the local community on Grinder, very well known. Like 
you know, to the point where random people in West Hollywood have slept with the mayor of West Hollywood. Uh, this is definitely part of a, a wider group of people. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the reason the Ed Buck case is being kept under tight lip is because it would um, probably reveal a lot of very horrific things going on in West Hollywood. Uh, and I, I feel as though most of, um, you know, the LA County sheriffs would probably love to figure out what's really going on here. And if this has happened to more people, which I assume it has, um, but they probably would never will. The, you know, the, the California structures we were talking about before the show started, uh, the California Republican Party is effectively dead. There's no one in California that's going to hold the Democratic Party to account for having a mega donor who seduces black teens into his basement, uh, puts needles full of methamphetamine into their testicles, and proceeds to have rough sex with them until they die. No one who's ever going to make that a public issue in the, in the California State Assembly. No one is going to make that an issue in the mayor's office because all of these political institutions in California are controlled by the party that's partially paid for by this guy. I mean, this is a, like Hank was saying, this is a, a real life serial killer. This is an actual serial killer. And he's basically getting away with it. He hired a, a lawyer, Seymour uh, uh, Amster. Who's basically <laughs> sounds about right? Who's basically like a fucking ambulance chaser from uh, Van Nuys? Okay, like yeah, his, his explanation, the lawyer's explanation is like, ah, Ed Buck, he's just he's a big-hearted guy, and he was uh, he was helping out a, a friend who was in a rough spot, and just you know, he just uh, couldn't uh, couldn't uh, keep kids off drugs, I guess. Yeah, it's a joke. The whole thing is a joke, and. He's not going to face any charges. He's not going to face any problems. I guarantee you that the mayor of West Hollywood probably has raped someone, if not multiple people at this point, and will face no problems, will face nothing going forward. You know, the West Hollywood City Council was talking about, um, didn't even entertain the idea that they would remove him, but we're talking about having like a public hearing on the matter. But I, my last I checked, they just didn't even have it. Like nothing ever happened. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, another film. Sorry to keep using fiction instead of uh, facts, but I, again, I don't, I don't really indulge in this stuff. You know, my spare time. We are talking about fictions. Well, <laughs> in a sense, perhaps. But um, what what came to mind was. Uh, the, uh, the book and film American Psycho, where the main character, Patrick Bateman, uh, who is of, in the 1980s, this sort of uh, stereotypically privileged person. He's this sort of uh, wealthy, intelligent, good-looking uh, white male living in New York City, successful investment banker, has you know, a nice girlfriend, uh, good job, lots of money, uh, and he's also a serial killer at night. Uh, and it, it's a very good film and book. It's a commentary on sort of the rapidity of uh, you know, American consumerism and capitalism at large. Uh, but what uh, in particular I wanted to bring up was the scene uh, where he's basically um, he's caught uh, in his sort of misdeeds uh, by 
the real estate agent that is showing the apartment that he was sort of using of one of his victims as kind of his lair. Um, and he left all the bodies sort of stuffed in the, the closets. And the real estate agent basically just cleans it out because her job is basically to, you know, flip, uh, flip property. And he shows up and, and she basically suspects him and asks him a trick question and he flunks it. And basically, um, she just asks him, well, you need to leave. Don't come back. But there's no punishment. There's other scenes where he's basically at odds with the police and he basically with, uh, you know, some version of a handgun manages to blow up all their vehicles and again, escape without any consequence. And then he even confesses to his, uh, his lawyer and his lawyer basically just doesn't, doesn't believe him or is unwilling to accept his confession. And so yeah, I mean, the contrast between that and today where you have a homosexual pervert conducting drug uh, and perverted acts uh, and he's again protected by the system just shows you the inversion of our society. Well, uh, this it's like is the when, person who's privileged now. It's like, it's like when Henry Lucas was being brought up for parole uh, prior to his... In his from one of his earlier crimes, which I believe was, uh, I think I think he murdered his mother. I, I can't remember what he was initially in prison for, uh, but he was asked, "Now, oh, Mr. Lucas, I must ask you: if we grant you your parole, will you kill again?" To which he replies, "Yes, sir. If you release me now, I will kill again." And then he's subsequently released. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the woke take on American Psycho is basically that uh, some of it is real and some of it's not, and like that the the real estate agent scene is real, and that he actually did kill some number of people in that apartment. And from what I remember, you know, hearing people talk about it, it was probably a cover up. You never really find out who Patrick Bateman's father is. It's only alluded that he's basically the head of this massively powerful law firm in Manhattan. So, it, you know, the, the assumption is that it's uh, tolerated and known by several that Patrick is uh, some kind of sadist and that it's being actively covered up. And that's why he's never caught and no one ever suspects him. And because in America, if you have money and power, you can rape and murder as you please. Yeah. And... The only time that you're ever going to get in trouble for this is if you start to inconvenience other people from the power elite, and then you'll be burned. The other way that you can do it, if you don't have money and power, but you have a traumatized childhood, usually you're, you're sexually abused, and you have violent uh, psychopathic tendencies, well, join the military. And you can kill as many people as you want, especially if uh, you get into some kind of CIA torture program and you can have a nice job mutilating and torturing people overseas. Which makes I me mean, wonder, by the way. Honestly, Strategic Asshole Reserve has a reason for existing. Well, yeah, it works. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's effective. Yeah, you take people. Who some are people effective. genuinely need killing. Yeah, and I, I don't think America is uh, <laughs> does a very good job of deciding that. You can you can quibble with the the sort of strategic uh, the strategic employment of such people, but I think it's uh, I would go so far as to say it's uncontroversial that you would rather uh, you would rather people with an inclination of uh, such things be 
on the uh, the inside of the tent pissing out than the reverse. Yeah, but then it comes back. Uh, comes back. The chickens come home to roost. Well, don't don't do that. I guess. Well, let's talk about the DC snipers. A case of the yeah, chickens coming home to roost. Let's talk about uh, probably uh, at the heart of it, one of the creepiest things I've read in quite some time. So I think people have a, a general idea of, uh, of what the, the DC snipers, the beltway snipers, as the FBI calls them, uh, were about. That basically in 2002, late 2002, post 9-11, uh, there was a string of shootings in uh, southern Maryland, northern Virginia, and D.C. Sort of the, let's call it the wider D.C. metro area. Uh and everyone was freaked out. There was a Washington Post headline uh, basically even saying that it was Al-Qaeda. It was Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's committing sniper attacks. Um, and they briefly tied it to the anthrax attacks, which had uh, just occurred recently. Uh, there was an attempt, I think. Uh, ma- mailed to the uh, congressman um, on the fence about signing the Patriot Act, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was Loki who did <laughs> who did a thread on the anthrax shenanigans and basically you walk away from reading that like, yeah, that was all bullshit. Too. <laughs> um, but, you know, generally the Washington Post and others are tying this to Al Qaeda because it's post 9-11. And the basic rub is that uh, on October 2nd, uh, basically a. Uh, a man walking across the street in a parking lot uh, in in Maryland uh, just shot. No one knows from where. No one even hears the gunshot, allegedly. Just shot. Dies. Uh, on, on the next day, there's five murders in one day. Four in Maryland and then one in actual improper D.C. Uh and then, you know, the next day, there was one woman shot in a mall. Three days later, there's a three-day gap, sort of inexplicably. A 13-year-old boy gets shot in Maryland. Two-day gap. Uh, a guy who's pumping gas, allegedly just pumping gas, gets shot. So then there's this meme, uh, and at the time, this spawned all this uh, stuff about gas stations putting up tarps. And people running from their car to the gas station clerk to pay so they didn't get shot, running back to their car and ducking behind the car to pump their gas and all this stuff. Uh, then there's a three-day gap. Then a, a woman is killed outside of a Home Depot in, uh, in Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, the woman ha- just happens to be an FBI analyst named uh, Linda Franklin. Then there's a five-day gap. Then there's a man who's randomly wounded outside of a a steakhouse in Nashville, Virginia. Then there's a three-day gap. Then a bus driver uh, is killed in Maryland, southern, very southern tip of Maryland, in Aspen Hill. And then uh, two days later, uh, two individuals are arrested in the back of their 1990 blue Chevy Caprice, a uh, man named Muhammad and a man named Malvo. Now, 
immediately, this uh, this case seemed weird to a lot of people. Um, first of all, you know, the, the 9-11 kind of gave it this extra edge. Was this terrorism? The immediate assumption was, yes, this is Islamic terrorism. Um, and, and the immediate capture of these men, uh, the assumption is, again, Islamic terrorism. You have a guy named Muhammad who was uh, like a like a, a estranged me- member of the U.S. Army and a teenager he was palling around with named Malvo, who uh, was like an illegal immigrant from Jamaica. No one really knows off the bat why uh, these people did this. No one can give any real uh, insight into what's going on. Uh, so FBI closes in, starts doing an investigation. So this individual, um, who's named Malvo, full name Lee Boyd Malvo is like 17 years old, uh, immediately cops the entire string of murders within the first day of being captured, not even like fully arraigned yet. And he's basically just talking like a bird of the FBI. Oh, I committed all these murders and then immediately starts going to all these other crimes. I mean, within 24 hours, this guy is just singing like a bird, just copying to everything. Um, and uh, John Allen Muhammad, who is presumed to be the mastermind of this, doesn't say a single word, totally silent, pleads not guilty, represents himself at court. Again... They start doing additional digging, and they uh, determine that these guys are probably on the hook for uh, several dozen other crimes leading up to this over the last several years uh, in multiple states. Uh, Washington State, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, all over the country. Murders, robberies, armed assault, all kinds of acts. No one really knows why. Uh People start digging further, and the determination is that um, John Allen Muhammad is basically a uh, disaffected former army member, and Malvo is this teenager he picked up at some point in his life. No one's really quite sure when, um, because Malvo proves to be somewhat of an unreliable uh witness even though he sings like a bird and has endless numbers of stories to tell uh that he he picked up this kid at some point in his life treats him like a son for whatever reason and uh goes around the country uh with this kid and initially his biological children young children committing at random acts of violence um, and then has his children taken away uh through the court system dig further realized that his wife, uh, his estranged wife, Muhammad's estranged wife, uh, just so happened to be a Justice Department employee who then receives full custody of her children and is granted an order or granted the ability by the judge to live in secrecy. Basically doesn't even have to disclose her location to Muhammad. Um, but no attempt is ma- no attempt uh, is made to arrest Muhammad, even though he's apparently late on child support and at one point left the country with the two children illegally. Um, there's no t- attempt to arrest him. 
Uh, he's effectively allowed to walk around despite having committed at that point, you know, multiple federal crimes having to do with uh, his own children. Uh, and he still has this teenager palling around with him. Well, they go on a, several crime sprees and eventually wind up in the nation's capital. There's competing narratives on what's going on here. Uh, I think one of the main narratives is there's an anti-white narrative, uh, very popular with the Stormfront crowd. Basically, the idea that comes from several uh, of his victims being white, although not all of them are white, um, and the testimony of Malvo, who claims that uh, Muhammad wanted to murder 30 white people a day for six days straight, who had a plan to kill white police officers and then blow up their funerals and stage a massive attack on their funerals, um, and who had ordered Malva at one point to uh, shoot a pregnant white woman in the head from some range away with a rifle uh, because she was putting another white child on the earth or, or whatever. Yeah, let me um, let me jump in here real quick, Hans. Yeah. So the world according to Stormfront, uh, the coloreds are incredibly incompetent and dysfunctional and not capable of any serious planning or plotting. Uh, except uh, when it serves the the racial narrative, yeah. Because now all of a sudden they're they're competent uh, murder masterminds. Yeah. So people start digging more and more into these murders, and more and more into the characters behind them. So the you know the main character Muhammad turns out not just an army guy; he's an actual combat vet, fought in Desert Storm, sixteen years in the military. And he, and as part of the army, he had uh, received different levels of training in different army specialties. Strangely, the only specialty that he apparently didn't receive any training in was scout sniper training. Or allegedly, uh, and recorded in the record, did not receive any scout sniper training. I mean, what what is that? Like, I mean, I know there's a there's an MOS of scout sniper but what does like what what did he actually do in the military he it, it's not even really known it was never fully disclosed what his military career and composed of all was known was that he had a combat a combat and arm specialty and that he was an active combat vet within desert storm and went to some of the army's special uh schools they have but for whatever reason did not go to scout cyber school i mean that's that's not at all weird. I mean, that's isn't that also a U.S. Marine Corps thing, not an Army thing? There is an Army Scout sniper training, not that is separate from the Marine Corps one. I'm pretty sure. That was the Marine Corps that that trained Charles Whitman. So, anyways, uh, he basically uh, starts committing these murders. Uh, the official story. Is because his wife took his children. Not really sure how that plays um, when you really look at it. He only ever really kills one person that is tangentially related to his wife. Uh, and that is one of the women he kills happened to have stayed at one of the like halfway houses that his wife stayed at around the same time. And they were kind of acquaintances. So the plot was that he was going to kill people connected to his wife and somehow disclose his wife's location so that then he could kill her, take the kids, 
and people would assume uh, also that because all the murders were random, he, they wouldn't assume it was him that killed his wife. This was this is the plot basically laid out by Malvo. Even though it's a contradictory plot, this is apparently what was going on. What was really going on was an attempt to uh, both randomize the killing to minimize his risk of being found out for killing his wife, but also kill people that were connected to his wife to scare his wife. It was a very bizarre plot. Uh, what's not really known is, A, where he continued to get money, other than from robbery, although uh, at one point in his custody battle for his children, the court ordered him to pay at the time in the early 1990s. No, no, no. I'm sorry. In the late 1990s, Ordered him to pay, like almost nine hundred bucks a month, which is not cheap, and that comes on the assumption that you have some level of income, that you have some level of uh, assets that you can utilize as collateral. But yet he was apparently homeless, according to the official police story. He was a, a homeless drifter, um, but along with that was also listed as having uh, ownership or semi-ownership over several small businesses sort of around the country. He partially owned a karate school. He owned an auto body repair shop in another state. He owned some kind of uh, media group called Reality Enterprises. There were a lot of very strange businesses he happened to be involved in that he seemed to be drawing an income from. And the court, uh, for, whatever, for whatever reason, was able to just figure that out was able to determine that maybe on the testimony of his wife that he wasn't actually homeless he wasn't actually poor it was an act or it was just dysfunction or something like that uh at any level when he started committing these killings um the original idea and of course malvo testified that uh, initially he did it all that um, basically malvo did all of the shooting and all of the robbery, and it was all on orders of Muhammad. Well, it, through various police investigations and through uh, further questioning, turns out Malvo shot like one person, and it was Muhammad who had shot pretty much everyone else and who had done most of the violence throughout their career. Why Malvo uh, was giving different stories constantly and was so willing to talk and why Muhammad refused to talk and pleaded not guilty to the very end. No one's really sure. No one's really sure why there was this social dynamic. Uh, there is an element of sort of MK Ultra training in regards to the relationship between uh, Mohammed and Malvo. That Mohammed sort of picked up Malvo in his travels at some point and taught him to be a killer. He took him to a gun range repeatedly. Uh, that no one found odd, sometimes for 12 hours a day, uh, and told him to imagine killing himself, that it was Malvo on the target every time, that he was putting a bullet in his own brain every time. This is really common with general sort of pro um, Project Monarch and MKUltra techniques of mentally breaking down someone's uh, inhibitions, and mentally breaking down their ability to see themselves coherently. Once you break down someone's ability to see themselves coherently, they're easy to manipulate. You can get them to do whatever you want. 
that Mohammed guy having a kind of weird career in the army for 16 years new to do this you can say it's just army training kicking in um but it does raise questions why no one ever seemed to uh, contact the police or even ask muhammad and malva what it was they were doing at the gun range 12 hours a day sometimes no one ever reported this to the cops uh if you know gun range owners they're not really going to uh, be tight-lipped if they think something's suspicious. And these guys scream suspicious. It's just scream suspicious to anyone. Um, but anyways, they eventually commit their first killings, not stopped. And at one point, a former uh, member of uh, Muhammad's unit when the uh, when the FBI and the DC police determined that this is a, a serial killer and this is a an active terrorist, uh, they put out a reward and they asked for tips. Well, at one point, in all the tips that came in, a member of Muhammad's unit and a former friend of his in the army gave his name, said that it's this man, it's John Muhammad. Nothing ever happened. That tip was never followed up on, inexplicably. When he was eventually captured, uh, or when he was close to being captured, there was sort of this uh, incredibly weird, I think uh, Nick mentioned it before the show, there was this incredibly weird moment where uh, the police chief was reading some kind of script and some kind of message to the killers on TV in the hopes that they were watching and listening. Isn't that right? And they were, and then they, yes. And then they were subsequently found sleeping in the car, I believe. Yeah. It was some like, you know, assumption is that this is some kind of hypnosis or post hypnotic suggestion. Yeah. Something equally obsequious, but uh, (laughs) it was, it was a, a catchphrase that had been, uh, let me find it really quick. I have it in front of me. So there was this hypnotic triggering cue. And so uh, basically, the, uh, Charles Moose, who's the Montgomery uh, County Police Chief, gets up. He says, uh, and he's reading from a script. And you can clearly see he's got a script in front of him. You indicated that you want us to do and say certain things, he said. You asked us to say, quote, we have caught the sniper like a duck in a noose. We understand that hearing us say this is important to you. <laughs> and then, again, a couple hours later, they were found sleeping and didn't put up a fight. Yes, yeah. wild man. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was, and there was, you know, like the meat afterwards of this was basically that. Uh, they tried to cast that Muhammad as some kind of like Islamic radicalist. But there had never been any, like, any indication that that's what this was about. This was about Islamic radicalism. Nothing good ever comes out of DC. Yeah. There was also several other weird elements, like, um, you know, after crimes would occur, Malvo would uh, hide the gun nearby the crime scene, or some at one point in an area that was cordoned off as a crime scene 
and the weapon was never found. And he would just stroll back the next day or two days later and grab the weapon out of a bush or from underneath a building or something, and that was it. I mean, a that's lot of- kind of a that's a weird. So the apparently the uh, the sort of aspect uh, that explains a lot of the the kind of very localized um, descriptions of some of these shootings. They actually so they had this ninety Caprice, which is a big ass car apparently, and they had drilled a hole in the trunk uh, above the license plate. And we're shooting, I forget which one of them was shooting, presumably the younger one. Um, we're shooting out of the trunk uh, with this rifle at, at a fairly short range. And the acoustics of that are such that you don't really hear the the gunshot per se, depending on where you are. Like the shooting from inside of an enclosed big space like that uh it kind of acts like a giant uh, muffler um, for the actual gunshot noise. Uh, And depending on how loud the surrounding environment is, you know, it can be explicable that you wouldn't necessarily hear like a Hollywood gunshot noise, which is what most people think about when they think a gunshot uh, from like 50 yards away or something. And it's surprising to me that they would then decide to like get out of the trunk and uh, dump their rifle on the ground, put it in a bush or whatever, and come back for it later. Like, just drive away, dude. Yeah, and when they were caught, um, basically they in the car they found a lap a Dell laptop. I'm sorry, it's like a Sony laptop, two way radios. And some kind of GPS monitoring device. Not really sure why they they had a laptop and a GPS device, but they did for some reason in the trunk of their car. And no one was interested who they might have been in communication with. Right. There's also this idea of like where exactly were they getting the money? Uh, I mean, you could say, okay, they were, you know, just uh, robbing people. But again, you know, the court was under the impression that this guy was making like middle class income, but he was apparently a homeless drifter that just stumbled upon a gun and stumbled upon killing people. Yeah, I wish I could just stumble across nice Bushmasters. That would be, uh, you know, do that yeah, two or three and, times. And the story of how he got the Bushmaster in, in like the Seattle Tacoma area is just an endless fucking rabbit hole. And at one point they confused him with someone else. And somehow the gun he had wasn't actually the gun he had or like the the, the serial numbers were ripped off and or not ripped off. They were confused. And then like it was sold back to a guy in Tacoma and then he sold it to someone else and he didn't know where it was and all this stuff. Like they couldn't, it just couldn't figure out where he got this gun officially, how, how and where he got this gun. What is the trail of evidence on the gun he used for this? No one knows. I mean, honestly, this, there's all these weird aspects to it. But none of it is really 
incongruous with the the kind of official story. I mean, sometimes weird things legitimately do happen. Like when you have a private party state um, with a robust gun market, a lot of the times, you know, people misenter serial numbers all the time. Um, people don't necessarily keep the best records if it's just a person-to-person sale. I mean, the the targeting thing with the ex-wife, I mean, the simplest explanation actually does seem to be that, you know, this was kind of a classical serial killer behavior with this weird uh, quasi, uh, quasi-sexualized quasi um, abuse uh, aspect and that's just how it shook out. Like the guy uh, got a taste for killing people somehow or another. Like the whole government connection via his uh, his military career, uh, and uh, you know the kind of quasi MK Ultra aspects. I mean, when we say MK Ultra, like it, it's also just kind of that entire program was just the kind of a systematization of the standard patterns of abuse that have been kind of known effective for centuries on kind of a, uh, you know, cultural or anecdotal basis. Mixed with so, our modern, uh, m- modern pharmacological stuff. Sure. I mean, I don't think there was any evidence ever that either of these guys was drugged, right? Like there was no, <laughs> yeah, drug no, no there was no evidence to that. And there was never alleged that they were into drugs, like that they were into psychedelics or that uh, Muhammad was like a drug addict of any kind or that he was an alcoholic. There didn't seem to be any sign of you know, rampant substance abuse, which you might assume, given their like, kind of weird behavior. I mean, if you assume the, cult, the counterfactual and you say that, well, mixed in with these other murders were like, you know, a couple of uh, Seth Riches and a... Uh, you know, a couple of other significant figures. I mean, that would kind of send the alarm bells ringing much more so. I mean, DC is coded with feds. It's not that out of the question that in Falls Church, if you happen to be in Falls Church and you just run into somebody in the correct age bracket, that they're going to be a fed of some sort or another. I mean, I don't understand kind of what the um what the actual uh alternative hypothesis is as far as what they were up to or what it was intended to do other than i could see there being a case for it being just raising the general tension what uh tension of the area kind of like the anthrax letters closing thoughts uh, in in summary i'd say that what you have is is the system itself contextualizing uh, very extreme violence for the public consumption. And I don't think all of these things are connected the same way that they would have you believe. I think that it accomplished a lot. I think you had organic or rather inevitable trends from the direction that America is headed. But what it ended up doing is increasing the atomization and isolation in American society and As Hank mentioned earlier, I mean, you had people showing up from out of town. You no longer had real communities. And so a lot of this violence could just be done without any serious look as to where it was really coming from. And I would say if you were going to uh, 
and you shouldn't ever seriously plot any kind of violence against a member of the protected classes, uh, they'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. The system will suddenly become very competent. But when it's the children of the white working class or the runaways of dysfunctional middle and upper middle class families, uh, they're going to they're gonna be slow to the trigger. It all began when they took me from my home and put me on death row. A crime for which I'm totally innocent, you know. I began to warm and chill to objects and their fields. A ragged cup, a twisted mop, the face of Jesus in my suit. Those sinister dinner deals, the meal trolleys, wicked wheels. A hook bone rising from my food And all things either good or ungood And the mercy seat is waiting And I think my head is burning And in a way I'm yearning To be done with all this weighing of the truth An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth And anyway I told the truth And I'm not afraid to die I hear stories from the chamber Christ was born into a manger And like some ragged stranger He died upon the cross Might I say it seems so fitting In its way he was a carpenter by trade Or at least that's what I'm told My kill hands tattooed evil Across its brother's fist That filthy fire They did nothing to challenge or resist In heaven his throne is made of gold The ark of his testament is stowed A throne from which I am told All history does unfold It's made of wood and wire And my body is on fire And God is never far away Into the mercy seat I climb My head is shaved, my head is wired And like a moth that tries to enter the bright eye I go shuffling out of life Just to hide in death a while And anyway I never lie And the mercy seat is waiting And I think my head is burning And in a way I'm yearning To be done with all this weighing of the truth An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth And anyway I told the truth And I'm not afraid to die And the mercy seat is burning And I think my head is glowing And in a way I'm hoping To be done with all this twisting of the truth An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth And anyway there was no proof And I'm not afraid to die And the mercy seat is glowing And I think my head is smoking And in a way I'm hoping to be done With all these looks of disbelief A life for a life and a truth for a truth And I've got nothing left to lose And I'm not afraid to die And the mercy seat is smoking And I think my head is melting And in a way that's helping To be done with all this twisting of the truth An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth And anyway I told the truth But I'm afraid I told a lie 